Well, good morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8. And if you're new to All Saints, my name is Brad Cheney. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. Good to, good to be with you. I'm, I'm still snuffly, but I'm on the mend. Not nearly as bad as I was last week. Kind of like the, the deep voice that I <laughs> Don't know if I want to get healthy too quickly. We're at a bit of a disadvantage. We're jumping into the middle of John chapter 8. When you're reading it, 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 can, it's, it, it may sound as though this is a, a religious debate between Jesus and the, the governing Jewish authorities. And they go back and forth arguing religious points. And it's, it's, very, it's long and um, it's tense at times. But it, it, may, it may just seem like a debate. But I'd like to reframe it, I think, in a way that maybe brings it out a little bit more. The Supreme Court ruled about 40 years ago, I think it was, that uh, burning the American flag is legally protected free speech, which means that you can, what's that? My mic to the front, all right. Uh, Legally protected free speech, which means that you, you can do it, it's allowed, but we, we would all probably agree that it's about the most offensive thing that a, a person can possibly do. Now, I want you to consider the difference between burning a flag at a demonstration in the streets of Berkeley versus burning a flag at the entrance of Arlington National Cemetery as veterans' families are coming and going uh, to, the, you know, to pay their respects to their beloved in their final resting place. I mean, one is bad. The other is sacrilege. You know, you know Arlington is, is, uh, is sacred real estate for us. And burning a flag right outside of Arlington is... I mean, if we were to witness it, I mean, wouldn't you feel just just sheer anger? I mean, rage boiling up inside of you? I mean, wouldn't we, we would want just a group of uh, Marines to go over there and just absolutely pummel the people that were doing it. I mean, there would be, there would just be, if we were there, there would be an an absolute electricity crackling in the air, an electricity of rage. It's not the perfect comparison, but I think it's largely accurate. I mean, where is Jesus standing in John 8? It is in the temple. It is in the place, the most sacred real estate in all of Judaism. And he is saying things that are lighting people up. Uh, He is, uh, there is gathering around him a crowd that is growing increasingly agitated with every single word that he speaks. They just get madder and madder. Um, The crowd grows it becomes, now it's a mob, now it's nearly uh, a murderous riot. And that, I want you just to feel that energy as we read now in verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, that is previously believed in him, but no longer, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's seeds, and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? I mean, could there be any more historical hysterical statement than we've never been slaves of anyone? 
you can kind of just get the sense of, of it, the, you know, the electricity. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If you are Abraham's descendants, I'm sorry, I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and, do, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered, Abraham is our father. If you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things that Abraham did. As it is, you were determined to kill me, a man who has done, who's told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. And they protested, we are not illegitimate children, which is clearly a, a dig upon you know, his mother Mary. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now am here. I have not come on, on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. And the Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, Jesus said, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself. But there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glory, glorify myself. My glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not 50 years old, did you say to him? And you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, since our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6. 
then help us to stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around our waist. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we ask this in his powerful name. Amen. Yeah, I mean, I read that in a, in a what, maybe a hysterical tone, but I wanted you to kind of sense what's going down. And uh, um, I guess the best way that I, could, I came up with preaching this sermon is we're going to look at four verses, four statements that are made throughout. I mean, obviously there was a lot there and I can't cover it, but ultimately I want to focus on four statements made in the battle. Verse 44, verse 46, verse 48, and verse 56. And what we're going to do, we'll look at, we'll just read it. I'm going to tell the story related to it, and we're going to draw some application. Maybe not the best sermon outline, but it's what I got. So, first one, verse 44. If you want to look there, he says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. Some of us are old enough to remember back in 1984, NBC ran an action series. It was, I don't know, it was Friday nights or something. There was 20 episodes in all, and the title of the series was V, V, for V for victory, um, victory for the resistance. So, yeah, the story was that there was an, an alien race that disguises themselves as human beings that comes to take over planet Earth. Uh, v, how many, anybody? Am I the, yeah, there's a few, a few of you. So 1984, I'm, I'm age nine, and I, my, somehow or another, my parents are letting me watch this. It was utterly terrifying to me. Like the things that my parents let me watch as a kid, I'm like, what were they thinking? But kind of the big moment in V, the big reveal, as it were, was when they catch, the humans catch one of the aliens, and as they go to peel back the human you know, face skin, Upon the alien, and what did it reveal? It revealed a reptile. (laughs) They're reptilian aliens. And uh, this is early 1980s. The CGI wasn't very good. And if you were to, you go back and you look at, watch it on YouTube today, you think, man, that's pretty hokey. But if you're nine, that's terrifying. (laughs) Utterly terrifying to find the reptile aliens under the mask. It's a silly story, but I want to use it to make a, um, a very serious point. In the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the word Elohim, you may have heard that. Elohim simply means God, except in the few instances where it doesn't mean God. It refers to spiritual beings that inhabit the heavenly realms. The Elohim are angels and, and demons, and what the Bible strongly suggests at its very beginning, at the beginning of the beginning, is that some of the Elohim rebelled against the Lord Yahweh, and one of the Elohim came to earth taking the form of a snake in Eden. I mean, all of us, when we read in the book of Genesis, we're like, well, why in the world is there a talking snake here? I mean, where did this come from? And there's actually, there's actually a hint of it of, a, of an answer that's found in the prophet Isaiah. 
Isaiah chapter 6. So Isaiah has a vision of God's heavenly throne room. He is, he is transported and he is surrounded by these spiritual beings that are called cherubim, a type of angel. And they are, you know, calling out one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I mean, the whole heavenly throne room is, is, is burning with the, um, the smoke and, and the, the loud voices of the cherubim. But when Isaiah sees these creatures, he doesn't call them cherubim. He calls them seraphim which in the Hebrew means snake. Snake. And I think that there we may have part of the connection that when this Elohim comes to earth at the beginning of the Bible, he takes on this shape of, I mean an analogous form of, of a snake. The very shape that the Elohim occupied in the, the, the heavenly throne room of God. Well, as the story goes on, the Elohim, he's not the only one. There are other Elohim who follow him to earth. And they are here, and their goal is to enslave people. And when the biblical prophets look out upon uh, the various violent empires on the earth, when they see Babylon and Assyria and Egypt and Greece, they see chaos and injustice. And, but behind those things, they see the Elohim, the fallen Elohim, the, the dark gods that corrupt and enslave mankind. So verse 44, if we go back to it now. When Jesus says to these men, your father is the devil, that is not a metaphor. That is not a figure of speech. Like what he is doing is he is pulling the mask off and what he sees behind these Jewish leaders are the demon gods. The snakes of all things. You know, the Elohim who have enslaved them. And I'm going to keep using that title throughout the sermon. I could just as easily use the word demon. But it seems to me, I mean, demon, that, it's almost like demon is like a colloquialized word today. Uh, demon, it, I don't know, it's, it just doesn't to me have the force. Um, the corrupting darkness, the God-likeness of whatever these spirit beings are, like the word Elohim has. So the Elohim, they, they have enslaved the Jewish leaders, and at the end of this passage, they bring the people to pick up stones by which they're going to throw, and they're going to stone Jesus to death, which incidentally, a terrible way to die, right? To die by stoning. They're going to kill Jesus right now here, and this is the fall time. Um, and it's a precursor to the cross. They don't, they're not successful here, but they're successful just a few months later. And what the Elohim don't realize is that in so doing, in crucifying Jesus, the act of crucifixion is actually the act that breaks the Elohim's power over mankind. Like God... God triumphs over the gods by allowing them to put his son to death. It is by the cross of Jesus Christ that God decisively breaks the power of the, the demon you know, snakes, for lack of a better word. And I think where I want to go with this is just simply the observation. We don't talk about that aspect of the cross very much in our circles, do we? We don't. Uh, we talk a lot about, rightly, uh, Jesus you know, bearing our sins on the cross. 
Jesus fulfilling the, the demands of divine justice, all of which are wonderfully true. But if you listen to us, we don't talk or sing very much about Christus victor, of, of Christ's victory, that Christ wins the victory. That, that, that's a central part of our celebration, that he, he triumphs over the corrupt powers of the Elohim. And quite frankly, one of the things the church needs today is more uh, poets and hymn writers to come along and write us some songs about that. Because if you listen to our theological and um, musical vocabulary, we're not singing very much about that part of the cross as, as its triumph. So more on that in a minute. But what John 8, first and foremost, is doing is it is revealing to us this cosmic battle that is taking place and preparing us for that cosmic triumph of Jesus on the cross. Number two, secondly, I want to look with the, uh, look at you. Uh, look, look, you look with me. <laughs> Woo! I just should say, verse 48. <laughs> verse 48. And the Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? And this is... Probably the most prime example of the pot calling the kettle black. Have you, did you notice this? That throughout the whole, and if you read the whole chapter, the whole chapter, you know, the Jewish leaders are accusing Jesus of lying to the people. The Jewish leaders are accusing Jesus of misleading the people. The Jewish leaders are accusing Jesus of being the spawn of the devil. Uh, all four gospels, incidentally, refer to the Jewish leaders as uh, uh, saying that Jesus is either demon-possessed or in league with the devil. All of the accusations they make against him are, are things that they are guilty of. Like it's, the ultimate, it's the ultimate example of projection. You've heard of projection before. Accusing someone of the very thing that you are guilty of. Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, among his many works, published a picture book illustrating the strange ways in which the human mind works. And one of the most striking pages in this book is a picture of Adolf Hitler. And underneath, uh, there's a caption. It reads, This man is going to set all Europe ablaze with his incendiary dreams of world domination. And that's, of course, what happened. You know, Hitler's much-publicized ambition of founding a German empire that would last for a thousand years gave birth to a Second World War and to the slaughter of millions of Jews and gypsies and others he considered undesirable. This man is going to set all Europe ablaze with his incendiary dreams of world domination. And you know what's crazy? That was not Carl Jung making a prediction that was an actual quote of Adolf Hitler that he spoke about Winston Churchill. And what Jung does in his book is gives it as an example of projection. When you accuse somebody else of the very thing that you're guilty of. And you know, you know obviously Jesus says that the devil works through lies and misinformation. But usually lies are only really powerful if you yourself believe the lie. And one of the easiest ways to believe a lie is to believe that your opponent is guilty of something that you yourself are guilty of. And the reason you believe they're guilty of it is because your conscience feels guilty and you can't even face it. 
or something like that. (laughs) And so, yes, as people begin to believe their own lies and superimpose those things on others, uh, that is a tool of the Elohim. And could there be any more Elohim-possessed individual in the history of mankind than Adolf Hitler? That That is how the Elohim, that is how they enslave. I mean, haven't you ever been... In a conversation, a fight with, with an adversary, um, a man who is a liar believes that you are a liar. A man who is underhanded believes everyone else is trying to stick him in the back. And that's how it goes, isn't it? So what do we do about, about this kind of enemy? I mean, I, obviously... You know, we have to be people of truth. We have to be people who hate lies, who hate all forms of misinformation. But I, I came up with another interesting idea on this, um, and it might be hopelessly confusing. <laughs> but one of the most difficult passages in all the New Testament to interpret is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and following. I was almost hesitant to quote it in the sermon because it is so difficult to understand and, and mystifying. But I think it, it does provide us an answer to the question, what are we to do with this particular enemy? And here's what we read, First Peter 3.18. Uh, first, there's a statement about the cross. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after, here's where it gets interesting. After verse 19, after being made alive, he went and he made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Think the imprisoned Elohim. Verse 20, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Uh, Yeah, you're like, what does that mean? (laughs) And we always wonder, well, what does that mean? One of the interpretations of this passage is that there were a group of, uh, uh, there's a group of Elohim who in the days of Noah tried to corrupt the human race and knew in terrible ways that I won't go into right now. And so God judged those Elohim, those, those, he, he sent their, those spirits, those spiritual beings into the, ch- he bound them in chains of hell and Peter uses the word Tartarus. You know, he sends them to the realm of the dead into hell and there they are bound and then we say in the Apostles' Creed that Christ descended into hell. And, and that's partly taken from 1 Peter 3. That Christ descended into hell, into the prison of the Elohim, where he proclaimed his victory over them. And Peter then makes this connection with baptism and says every time a person you know, hears the truth of the gospel and passes through the waters of baptism, uh, it's like that victory of Jesus Christ over the cosmic forces, it is being reproclaimed every time. Like, and that's, that's how you fight against this kind of enemy. Um, 
I mean, yeah, you, you live in the truth, you speak the truth, you proclaim particularly the truth of the gospel, and every time a person believes that and passes through the waters of the baptism, it is being proclaimed to the universe that Christ has triumphed. That's how we fight. Number three, verse 46 Actually, look at verse 46, because I just want you to see that he actually says this. <laughs> verse 46, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Now, that's a very remarkable statement to say in the middle of a, a howling a mob that wants to, <laughs> to kill you. you know, can, can any of you prove me guilty of, of sin? Um, and he goes, if I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Many of you know that I'm not a huge movie fan, and if you were to ask me to give you my top 10 list of best movies in 2019, I, I probably couldn't give you 10, because I don't know that I, I did a full 10, but at least in my top three, would have to, one of them would have to be the documentary Free Solo. I'm just curious, how many of you, I know, yeah, how many of you watched it? Oh, you are in for a crazy ride <laughs> if you haven't seen it before. So it is the, it, it's a documentary. It follows the story of a climber by the name of Alex Hanold and his attempt to climb El Capitan in Yosemite. You know, the most landmark you know, uh, you know, icon in Yosemite, 3,500 feet, granite slab. You say, well, what's so impressive about that? I mean, don't. It's impressive to climb El Capitan, but I mean, but a handful of people do it every year. And the answer is, he's going to climb it without rope, without gear, without protective equipment whatsoever. He's going to free solo it. That's the type of climbing he does. Free solo. Uh, and I've never seen anything like this movie before. It is a trip. It is cr- It is crazy. I mean, there are times, and I watched it in, at home on our television. If I saw this thing on IMAX, maybe some of you did. But there are times, I mean, he is on a, he is on a, a rock face that is pure vertical. Um, and it says that on in the hardest parts of some of his climbing routes, his fingers will have no more contact with the rock than most people have with the touchscreens of their phones, while his toes press down on edges as thick as sticks of gum. And he doesn't have a rope on him. I mean, literally, there is nothing but 2,000 feet of air right underneath, literally under his heels. And you're watching this. I mean, how, how many of you had clammy hands? You can't, I mean, I'm sweating through my shirt as I am, I am watching Free Solo. His memory serves, it serves me correctly. The beginning of, this, of the movie, they just show a name of a Free Solo climber, you know. You know, Hans Anderson. And then they show his, his, uh, the day he died. And then they show the na- another name. Day he died. I think, I think you do about a dozen of those. I mean, you don't live, into, you don't live past the age of 40 if you're, if you're a free solo. Every single, it is a, it is a sport with 100% mortality rate. You don't survive. And so, uh, yeah, part of it is just following him in this death-defying uh, event, I mean, of, 
of honestly, of athletic prowess. It might have been, okay, I'll give it away. He, he successfully does it. It might have been the greatest athletic feat that has ever been done by a human being. Um, and you say, how does he do it? How, other than the fact that he is in incredible shape, how, is the, how does the man do it? And what they do, what they do in the movie, they do a brain scan of him. They, they do a brain scan that focuses on the reactivity of his amygdala. You know, the amygdala is the small almond-shaped region of the brain that sits at the tip of the hippocampus whose function is to process strong negative emotions like fear. And what they find, surprise, surprise, his amygdala, it ain't like ours. It doesn't fire. You know, our amygdala is screaming to us. There's 3,000 feet of air beneath me. And his amygdala is like sipping tea. You know, he's chill. And what, it, what becomes clear is this man has a real-life superpower. He has an advantage that none of the rest of us have. And it turns out to be an incredible disadvantage, too. Because that's how every overdeveloped advantage works in humans. Every overdeveloped strength is a weakness. And so what you find as you watch the movie is what kind of person is... Um, is Adam and old like. Well, he is an extremely emotionally distant man. Here's a man who he, he taught himself how to hug other human beings because that's what you're supposed to do. Um, here's a man who sees his own death as inconsequential to all of the loved ones that are around him who are pleading with him, please don't do this. I mean, even the, tele- the, uh, the, the movie crew like, the movie crew is deeply in conflict. I mean, we're most likely filming this guy's death. There's a 99% probability that we are filming his death. And he's like, I don't care. Um, this is a man who finds it almost impossible to utter the words, I love you, to his girlfriend. And so on one hand, it's the story of the greatest athletic achievement ever that's made possible in part by his amygdala. And on the other hand, a man who cannot connect with other people that's made impossible in part because of his amygdala. And that's how we humans work. Like there is nobody, nobody who has, who has a great strength that doesn't turn into like a crushing weakness. Nobody. Except what Christianity maintains about this body. <laughs> this man, this Jesus. I mean, how do you account for a man who produces teaching of such overwhelming wisdom and character of such attractional beauty, and deeds of such awesome power, and who is so confident in his moral integrity that he could stand up in the middle of a hostile crowd and say, I don't got any sin. Can you prove me of any sin? A man with every strength and with no fault. What do you do with a guy like that? Which leads me to the fourth one. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And they said, this is crazy talk. You're not yet 50 years old. And you, what, you've seen Abraham? And, and Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. And the I am is, of course, just the divine name. You know, that's Yahweh of the Old Testament. I am who I, I am. Like Jesus is so conscious of the Father 
the Father being with him, the Father working in him, the Father speaking through him, that he can call himself like, I am, which was the ultimate act of sacrilege, and that's why they went to stone him. So the last story I want to give you, Jacob Neusner was a renowned Jewish scholar. He died about three years ago. He wrote a book that caught some national popularity entitled, A Rabbi Talks with Jesus. And in the book, it becomes quite clear that, you know, he doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Yet he repeatedly, in the conversations, you know, he says, I have the profoundest respect for you, Jesus. Like, I would never want to call into question the greatness of Jesus. And at the end of the book, he, he essentially says, I, yeah, I, you know, I tip my cap to Jesus and I wish him well. <laughs> well, then another Jewish rabbi comes along and writes a fairly critical view, a review of a rabbi talks with Jesus. And he, he says, you know what? It's passages like these that make Neusner's book so problematic For the moment that one person in an argument claims to be God, dialogue and debate become somewhat impossible. (laughs) When somebody asserts their own divinity, you know, the questioner has only two options. Believe, obey, and worship, or back away slowly. As such, Neusner's friendly dialogue with Jesus amounts to a polite hedge. Faced with a man who insists that he is the equivalent of the I am, one cannot disagree with Jesus with respect and reverence. One cannot challenge the man's claims while remaining moved by his greatness. And then the rabbi, of all people, you know who he ends up quoting? C.S. Lewis. He quotes C.S. Lewis. And, you know, so C.S. Lewis developed the trilemma. It's not a dilemma, it's a trilemma. Jesus is either, you know, liar, lunatic, or, or lord. Some people would say, how do I change that into four? Um, legend. You know, some people would say that these words we read in John 8, I mean, Jesus never said them. This is just the later church putting words in Jesus' mouth. Um, and I think there's a lot of argument, strong argument can be made that's not true. But he quotes C.S. Lewis and he said, like, hey, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a guy who says he's a poached egg, or or he would be the devil of hell. But you must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. But let's not come up with this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So the rabbi's quoting C.S. Lewis. And he concludes, the hard truth is that when it comes to the choice facing Christians and Jews, there's no way of splitting the difference. Is Jesus who he claims to be? Is he someone worthy of worship? Or is he someone with whom even friendship is not worthwhile? For us Jews, Neusner's approach, uh, Neusner approaches Jesus in the wrong way. For Jesus is not someone with whom we can have a dialogue. If we deny his divinity, then we can respond with nothing short of shock and dismay when we read the words of a man who put himself in the place of God. And I have to say, I think I agree with the second rabbi more than the first. Um, 
it really does come down, it really does come down to who is this? Who is this standing in front of me? Who is this Jesus? And let's not, let's not kid ourselves. If he is the Messiah, the one the prophets predicted, the one that is greater than Abraham, the one who defeats the Elohim, then he is God and he deserves undivided devotion and obedience. Or else he's probably, as Lewis says, a poached egg. But make no mistake about it, the most important question every human being must answer, and the most important question you yourself must answer, who is Jesus Christ? Is he God? Or are the Elohim God? Or who is your God? For there is no neutrality. Everyone is following one God or another. And the match, the match has already been struck. Amen.